Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for that balloon not popping on the way up. All right. I think the kids are going to go to Children's Church with Mr. Brian and Mr. Craig today. Not this Mr. Craig, the other Craig. Before we turn to God's Word, I just want a quick uh, missions highlight for you. Um, several of you have been asking how Abby's doing. Uh, if you know, our daughter went to Craiova in Romania, and uh, she's doing well. She found an apartment. She's been getting um, uh, accustomed to the, the food and the land and the people, and, and just she's having a wonderful time and um, just very thankful for how God's working in her life and opening doors of ministry already. Uh, she has some young adults that have asked to meet with her that want to work on their English and that are not not believers, and so she's uh, looking forward to some of those opportunities as well. Found a church that she's um, planning on being involved in already and chosen which church she's going to go to. And um, as I think I mentioned she found an apartment that just uh, was just a, a blessing. And so anyway, doing very well. She sends her greetings. I know she's been sending messages for the kids at Awana, and many of you are on her email list, but just a quick update from her. Um, secondly, I got an email early this morning from the Colsons, who we've been praying for in North Africa. Uh, they're here on a sabbatical, or on a, their furlough, but um, they had their baby yesterday or the day before, and so uh, praise God uh, for the safe delivery of their number five, I think. And so exciting days. They'll be heading back to Africa here very shortly. And then uh, also, I uh, saw the Snyder here, here today, and just want to say hello. Good to have you here. Welcome back from Cuba and all your other travels. Do you want to give us a 20-second update on Cuba and, and what God is doing there? Um, just really briefly, you can stand right where you're at and just maybe a 20 to 30 second update of how things went in Cuba. God has called us to make disciples, and that starts with going. It, it uh, continues as we uh, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then we continue to teach them everything that He's commanded us. And so it's wonderful to have that opportunity here in eastern Iowa to share the gospel and for God's word to go forth. It's also a wonderful opportunity for us to partner uh, with some of our, our other friends that are serving in Cuba and Romania and other parts of the world. Uh, it's an amazing time to live in that uh, we can communicate the way that we do and um, work with one another and be praying for one another the, the day things are happening rather than wait four weeks for some uh, snail mail to get here from uh, somewhere in North Africa. So God is um, good to us. It's an exciting time for us to live and to serve and to be doing his work. Let's continue as we can uh, make disciples and uh, work together with one another and with our partners around the world. Well, if you would join me in prayer, let's turn to God's word. Um, but before we do that, let's turn to the Lord of the word. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for these incredible words that you have put on these pages. Words that were written down in ancient times that are just as relevant, just as real, just as pertinent to our lives today as they were written 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. That you are a good God and you've given us so much in Jesus Christ. You've given us eternal life. You've given to us grace. You've given to us the salvation that we so desperately needed because we were lost in sin. 
thank you for what you teach us here today. And as we continue in First Peter, I pray that you would open our hearts to the message that is here. Transform us and make us more like Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin today with a little bit of a word association. Uh, think to yourself, you don't have to say it out loud, but think to yourself the first one or two things that come to your mind when I say each of the following words. Biology. Sociology. Geology. Meteorology. Technology. Psychology. Zoology. And archaeology. There's a list of a few hundred more ologies that we could probably go through. I won't do that to you. But um, how did those words in particular make you feel? Just two or three people. What were the first feelings that came to your mind as you heard a few of those words? Confused. Okay, good, good. That Confused. Study of. Okay, good. You know your Latin or Greek or whichever that comes from. I should know. It is Greek. But what's it? Science. Okay, so we have different sciences. Good, good. One more. How'd you feel? What's that? School. How'd that make you feel? Yeah. You know, they they, do they stir up excitement? Do they create memories of science labs and lots of math? Uh, obviously, they all have one thing in common. Uh, each is the study of a particular field of science or a discipline of knowledge. But in a room this size, there's probably a mix of emotions. It makes some of you chomp at the bit because you want to learn something, and others of you that disengage and you start looking for the door. Lumped in with these ologies and a bunch of other onomies, uh, we come to theology. And, and I'm afraid that many Christians bring those same mixed emotions when they hear the word theology. Is it for some people here? You just hear, oh, theology. This is going to be heavy. This is going to be a lot of doctrine, you know. Some are eager to learn, and, and some assume that doctrine is going to be too difficult, and so they check out. However, I want to plead with you to embrace what we call the queen of the sciences. Theology. It should excite us. It should excite all of us because we are speaking here of, of the opportunity not to know about life, not to know about animals, not to know about the knowledge of the mind or, or the soul or whatever composes these, these different studies. But with theology, we're looking at the opportunity to know our God. And when we talk about theology, what we're, what we're really talking about is just the study of God who has revealed himself. And we call it the queen of sciences because he's revealed himself in his word. And this poses the basis for anything else that we study. And it's the starting point for all other things. It's an opportunity to know our God and to live in light of what we believe about him. Doctrine changes the way that we live. And we should stop looking at it as something that, oh, this is going to be tedious and boring and something so overwhelming. And, and look at it as an opportunity to know my God and see how can I live my life pleasing to him and, and honoring him because I've come to know him better today. As we look at a lot of the New Testament epistles, some wonderful examples, incredible works on theology. Uh, Romans unfolds the doctrine of justification by faith. If you look at Ephesians, there's this incredible treatise where Paul teaches us about the church. Uh, Colossians is a beautiful work on the superiority of Christ. And then we come to 1 Peter, which we're coming to a close on now. 
in these next few weeks. But 1 Peter is a very interesting book because in it, the apostle builds a theology of suffering. It's not the first go-to, is it? Not, not If you're writing a letter, it wouldn't be the, the first thing that most of us would say, huh, how can I, how can I find a, some understanding of this field of study? Um, what can I write about? Well, let's write about the theology of suffering. What, we, what do we believe about suffering as those who are strangers in a hostile world? And just as important, how do we live out what we believe? Because theology and doctrine is never supposed to remain something that's just head knowledge. It has aspects of it that are exciting and, and, and give those of you who want to learn something, something to work on. But, but doctrine should never be something that just stays up here in the brain. But it affects what we believe about God. And that has to be translated into living life as followers of Jesus. Uh, I'll be honest with you, this has been my first time teaching or preaching the book of First Peter. And, and it has been a joy to, to sing the song of praise with Peter for the salvation that our God has given to us. It, it's been a delight to consider what life looks like in the family of God. And, and as we saw in the heart of this epistle, Peter's challenged us to embrace suffering with good news in mind. That suffering is an opportunity for you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. And he allows that suffering to come into your life. One of the greatest purposes is so that he might shine through you. And they might see the same light that has come to the darkness that you once had. Now we come to the final section of his letter. And Peter's going to wrap things up. And he's going to apply that theology to what we've learned. And so this last three weeks, Peter's going to walk us through some practical application to what he's taught us about suffering throughout the rest of this book that we've been looking at. In fact, today's text pulls together the previous three and a half chapters with uh, four imperatives for suffering with eternity in sight. The first imperative for Christians, the first command, is do not be surprised. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Do not be surprised. In verse 12, Peter shows us our first response to suffering. He's just spent over three chapters discussing what it is like to be exiles in a hostile world, what our reaction needs to be to the world, what our reaction needs to be to these trials that come into our lives. Uh, He's discussed how we should expect trials and persecution. But somehow, unbelievably, sometimes we're all still surprised when it comes, aren't we? Not all the time, but sometimes it comes and we go, where'd that come from? And Peter describes suffering as the fiery trial. And I want you to notice that he doesn't say, if the fiery trial comes to test you. Early on, Jesus taught his disciples before he left that they would suffer. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you you falsely on my account. Again, Jesus didn't say if, but when. In the same way, Paul reminded Timothy, he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. Lots of different levels to what that persecution looks like. Some of you may give your life for this, and some of you may be called some names. Some of you may be rejected by your family members. But persecution comes in various forms. And if you desire to live godly in Christ, the thing is, is that because we are in Christ, life changes. 
and, and we see life different and we believe differently than the world believes. And they will reject you because of that. And so Peter does not say if the fiery trial comes, but when the fiery trial comes. Do not be surprised. Uh, Pastor Stephen Cole pointed out that we, we're often surprised anyways in three different ways. We, we're often surprised by the intensity of the trial, which Peter calls fiery. We're often surprised by the purpose of the trials. And, and note that w- they are intended to test us. We don't usually think of them that way, do we? We just think, oh, I've got to bear with this. I've got to go through this. But trials purify us. It's one of their purposes. But we're also oftentimes surprised by the source of our trials. Oftentimes, when you are persecuted, you're persecuted by the same friends that you used to hang around, your, fi- your family members that you've loved all your life. And Peter commands us not to be surprised as though something strange were happening. Last Sunday, uh, I watched the Super Bowl, as many of you did. Uh, I think it's the first time I've watched the Super Bowl since my Broncos played several years ago. Um, kind of lost interest, and this time I thought, oh, I'm going to watch the game and see how this goes. And, and most of you know me, and you would not be surprised if I told you that I was always the last person picked for a schoolyard game. I just, I, I, I didn't contribute anything. I, I played basketball with our church league. And I was telling somebody just the other day, I think it was at church, um, I was talking to you, I was on the B team. And if there was a C team, they would have put me there. An entire season of basketball, I made one three-pointer. No two-pointer. It was a lucky shot. So uh, athletics, you know, unless it was an individual sport, weightlifting or biking, it just wasn't me. And so I was watching the game last Sunday, and even I was shocked at what happened in overtime. I was, I was aware that the NFL had changed the rules in recent years regarding overtime. And, and you see, under, not to belabor this, but under the new rules, even if the first team scores a touchdown on their first drive, the opposing team would have, th- they have the opportunity to, to tie the game, and, and they get their own, a drive of their own. And I heard about that rule. I remember when the rule came out a couple years ago or one year ago or whenever it was. And, and I, I figured if I heard about this rule and I knew about this rule when they went into overtime, I figured every single player in the NFL would know about this new rule. And so when the San Francisco 49ers won the coin toss and they chose to receive the ball, I, I thought to myself, did I not understand something about the new rule? Because that's one of the worst decisions you could make. They just sacrificed their advantage. But when they all went to the sidelines, one of the teams, when they heard the rule announced by the referee, they were scrambling in surprise, even standing on national television. You could hear their voices saying, I didn't know about the rule. Did you know about the rule? I didn't know about the rule. When did this change? And they get another chance after we score. They didn't know about the rule. And on the other sideline, you could see you could see the quarterback of Kansas City raising his eyebrows when the other team said they wanted to receive the ball. And he was they were jumping up and down with excitement because they had been prepping for the rule. They had four meetings coming up, four meetings the month the month before the game, specifically talking about the rule just in case it happened. You see, one of the best two teams in American football was surprised when the test came because they didn't know. And they probably maybe lost the game because of it they certainly gave up their advantage you see in the same way my friends god does not want you to be surprised when the fiery trial comes when the fire burns hot 
don't be caught off guard or claim, I didn't know the rules. Peter's taught us about the theology of suffering. And so therefore, we now should know and we should understand how to face trials and how to face suffering with eternity in sight. The second imperative is tied to the first. Our response to suffering should not be surprise. Rather, our response to suffering should be to rejoice. Peter points out two reasons for us to rejoice. First, we rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You see, we rejoice because we when you suffer and when you go through trials, and, and, and I think the focus here is on persecution and, and suffering that comes because we live in a fallen world that is hostile towards those who follow Jesus Christ. But, but suffering comes in many forms. Sometimes it's in the form of trials and the circumstances of life. And I, and I want to challenge you that in all of these forms of suffering, but especially under persecution, we rejoice insofar as we share Christ's suffering. We have a special bond with Jesus who first suffered on our behalf. We believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth, and as Cindy so wonderfully shared with the, the children just a few minutes ago, we, we, we love him because he first loved us. We believe that Jesus came, came into this world, and he was born into this world, but he came to die, and he did that on our behalf. Earlier in Peter, we, we've seen how he came to do that, and, and he, he came and he gave us our righteousness. He suffered on our behalf and made an end of sin so that he might bring us to God. And for those who believe him, believe that he died on the cross for our sins, he gives eternal life and he brings us to God. My friends, when you suffer for his sake as a believer in Jesus Christ, does nothing for your salvation, doesn't get you closer to heaven, doesn't get you closer to a relationship with him, having a relationship with him. But when you suffer for his sake as a believer who has already been saved, my friends, you share with him in his sufferings. That's why Paul was able to say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. He says, I, I rejoice in the sufferings because God is using that and I get to share and participate with Jesus and it benefits you. Peter goes on in our text to describe how you are blessed when you are insulted. Part of the blessing is that you experience the special ministry of the Holy Spirit of God who rests on you. When you go through that suffering, he comes in and he encourages in a, in a very particular way. He takes suffering and he turns it into an assurance of your salvation. And then he molds your fiery trial into something that the world cannot understand. And so we rejoice. And rejoicing springs out of the warm embers of our union with Jesus Christ. But there's a second reason we will rejoice. And notice that it's not just because we share with Jesus, but also Peter, and he's touched on this already, and this, this life between suffering and eternity. But here again, he reminds us that our rejoicing will be even greater when his glory is revealed. When Jesus returns and the entire universe proclaims, wow. When they're astonished and speechless. Our present suffering 
the hardships will be seen for the temporary nature that they are. And these hardships will be seen in light of the great glory that eternity holds for God's people. Amen? Well, there's a third imperative. So, not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. In response to the suffering that is in light of eternity, do not be ashamed. You see, contrasted to the rejoicing that comes from suffering for the name of Christ is the sorrow of suffering for doing evil. Takes all the joy out of it, doesn't it? You lie to somebody, you get caught in the lie and you suffer for it. Do you rejoice in that? No. Do you murder someone? Do you rejoice in the suffering that comes as a result of that? Absolutely not. See, back in chapter 3, Peter's already challenged us to remember that we are going to suffer. And so therefore, it is better to suffer for doing good. And so let not your suffering be because of sin. If you suffer for murdering someone, there's no good in that. How will stealing bring about rejoicing? Meddling, he, he, he mentions here, it, it means to be a busybody, putting yourself into matters that don't concern you. Rejoicing comes when we suffer for Christ's name, not for bringing him shame. And then in verse 16, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, as, as I was looking through this, I kind of just read over that verse. I, you know, I been studying it and i got to verse 16 and said, yeah it just kind of makes sense there there's you know pretty straightforward then i started looking a little closer at it and i and i think that we read that verse a bit differently as believers in the 21st century than than the believers who lived in the first century and so just allow me to paraphrase this verse by changing one word yet if anyone suffers as a jesus freak let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Do you read that a little bit differently that time? When we refer to ourselves who follow, when we refer to ourselves, those who follow Jesus, what's the most common word that we use to describe ourselves today? Christian. We, we call ourselves that. It's in our names of our churches. It's, it's in our brochures. We call ourselves Christian. But you might be surprised to know that the word Christian only appears three times in the entire Bible. Didn't you know that? I knew it was a few, but I didn't realize it was that few. The first occasion was in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where Luke tells us that um, the believers were in Antioch. This is where Paul and Barnabas went out from and as missionaries. And, um, and we're told in Acts eleven twenty-six, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Was, was it the people in the church calling themselves Christians? It was the outsiders. It was the people in their community that saw this crazy group of, of people following Jesus Christ, this guy that had died down in Jerusalem, and, and, and they followed that. And so they called them little Christs. And, and it, was a, it was a term, it was a derogatory term. It, it, the scoffers in Antioch coined the term as an, as an insult. But the disciples saw it, and, and, and they heard it, and, and they took it as a badge of honor. It wasn't an insult to them, and they said, we're going to live Christ like that. We are going to be little Christ. And so they embraced the name Christian, and Christianity took its name from there. We are Christians because we follow Jesus Christ. 
Later on in Acts chapter 26, we find the second time that this word is used, and it comes from the mouth of King Agrippa. And if you remember the story, Paul is in, is, is in chains, he's been arrested, and, and the, the, the King Agrippa and, and Festus and, and one of the other governing officials kind of kept Paul around because they were hoping to get some bribes, which never came. And so he just stayed in chains and stayed in chains until he finally appealed to Rome. But within that opportunity, Paul had the opportunity to, to share the gospel with these high officials, kings and governors, and even Caesar himself eventually. And King Agrippa heard the gospel with, from, from Paul. He said, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Seriously, Paul? Why would you think you could persuade me to be a Jesus freak? Do you hear the tone there? A Christian. And then the third instance of the word is here in 1 Peter, where he reminds us, do not be ashamed when they insult you and you suffer as a Christian. Do you hear how that word, how that, that verse is read a little bit differently when you understand the context of that, that name. And so Peter turns it around, and he admonishes us to glorify God in that name. I think he's talking about that name Christian. When you share Jesus, and when you follow Jesus, when you imitate Jesus, do not be embarrassed or shamed because of your relationship with him. My friends, we are called to share the gospel with people, and, and we should be praying about opportunities in your life. You should be praying for individuals that you might be sharing the gospel with in your neighborhood, in your family, people at work and school. The leadership uh, of the church had a retreat uh, a couple weeks ago. We, we, just, we, we just looked at our vision statement, considered how our church is doing in fulfilling the Great Commission, and, and we all agreed that probably one of the weakest areas of our church, if Jesus was to write a letter to us today and say, I, I commend you for this, you're doing a great job, but here's some things we got to work on. Personal evangelism is probably one of the areas that we're struggling the most. And it's something we're praying about how we can deal with that and how we can address that problem in our lives and in our church. I think one of the ways that it starts is, is we embrace the idea that I am not ashamed. And so when I have the opportunity to share the gospel with people, I not only know the gospel, but I also preach the gospel boldly. I am not ashamed of Jesus Christ. And so live in a way that you are a little Christ. May others see your life, and may your walk point them to Jesus. In terms of what Peter earlier said, proclaim the excellencies of the God who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our lives as followers of Christ should reflect his magnificence. And so my friends, don't ever be ashamed of the Christ that you follow. Now, before we move on to the fourth imperative, Peter kind of lingers here for a couple more verses. And he reinforces the principle. Uh, again, suffering should not take place because we committed some evil, but let your suffering be because you're doing good. And may God be glorified in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your following Jesus. But then in verse 17 and 18, he points to an Old Testament pattern, and he quotes or paraphrases an Old Testament proverb. In verse 17, he explains the Old Testament pattern. Read it with me. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those 
who do not obey the gospel of God. And, and I believe what Peter is referring to here is he's looking at several passages, particularly in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and probably some others, but where um, in these several passages, God judges the nation of Israel or he predicts the judgment that's going to come and he shows how it's going to take place. And rather than starting out on the outer edges of Israel or rather than starting out with the, the, the other nations that are worse off than, than the Israelites were, that, that didn't believe, that walked in, in paganism and idolatry, rather than starting by judging the nations who walked in greater sin than Israel, God began where? Not only in Jerusalem. In, I, heard, I think I heard it what? In the temple. He started in the temple. He started with the Holy of Holies, and he went out from there, and he judged the priests, and he judged the people who were religious. And then he worked his way out. In the same way, the Lord is concerned about purifying his people today in the church. He looked at Israel and he saw the sin. He says, we have to purify this. He says, I want my people to be holy because I am holy. And, and he started with the religious and he worked his way through the, the nation of Israel. And he judged his own people in order to purify Israel. And he is just as concerned about purifying the church. And so we are to be those who follow him, not those who commit evil ourselves. And, and my friends, suffering in various forms, persecution, trials, suffering is one of the greatest tools the Lord uses to purify us. He, he takes it in your life, and, and, it, and it draws you to put your trust in him. It, it challenges you. It, it causes you to depend on him. He uses trials and persecutions to refine us and to make us more like Jesus. But then next Peter reinforces this concept by paraphrasing the idea of Proverbs 11.31. In, in Proverbs, Solomon told us, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. And again, the idea is that the Lord is purifying us, his people, during our lifetime. He's making us more like Jesus as we walk with him and as we live this life. And then when sin comes into our life, he, he has to cut some of that away. And sometimes that hurts. Even if his, in his judgment of, even in his judgment of us, he is bringing about, he's bringing it about in a manner that causes us to walk with Jesus and to be more like him. But for those who are without Christ, when does their judgment come? comes after this lifetime and it's eternal and so peter states the proverb in this way he paraphrases it and he says and if the righteous is scarcely saved if you barely get through what will become of the ungodly and the sinner and it's an eternity of god's wrath that is waiting for them and so all of this points uh, again to the imperative do not be ashamed of christ my friends, there is a lost and dying world out there who needs him. They need to hear the message, the good news that Jesus Christ died in their place. We need to be sharing the gospel with people because they are going to a lost eternity. And so God begins by purifying us so that some of them, even those that are persecuting you, even some of those that are the very ones that are responsible for your brothers and sisters dying for their faith, some of those might come to know Jesus Christ as they respond to the good news that they hear from you and that they see in you. He 
your suffering leads to God's glory. There's a fourth imperative. It's tempting for us to be surprised by suffering. It's tempting for us to grumble about suffering. It's tempting for us to give in to sin and suffer for the wrong reason. But instead, Peter commands us to not be surprised. Rejoice in your suffering. Do not be ashamed. But the fourth imperative is to entrust your soul to your faithful creator. There's an eternal perspective of one who began things and one who is going to end things. And so notice in verse 19 that those who suffer go through that process according to God's will. He not only allows suffering in your life as a Christian, but he even has a design for it. He uses it in a way that that he accomplishes his purposes in your life. His purposes for his glory and his purposes for bringing other people to Jesus Christ as they witness your suffering and how you live in light of eternity. Never forget also that he's a faithful creator. He made you. It's one of the only times in the New Testament that calls him the creator. There's passages that talk about his creation in the New Testament, of course, but but that title itself. Understand, he, he made you, and he made no mistake in the way that he made you. He did not err when he put you where you are. He is your creator. My friends, he is faithful. But also note that entrusting yourself to him is not only displayed through your faith in him, but it's also displayed through your obedience of doing what is good. And so if God was faithful to his purpose when he created you, understand that he will be faithful in guarding you even through the worst of suffering and to accomplish his purpose through you even in the midst of that fiery trial. So friends, suffering, it's going to come in your walk with Jesus Christ. It's going to come. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is going to come. It it may not be death. It may not be beheading like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ deal with every day around the world. It may be insults. It may be rejected relationships. But suffering will come. It will happen. We don't tend to look for suffering, do we? Do you wake up in the morning and just pray, Lord, hey, you think you could throw some of that fiery trial this way? I kind of like a little bit of that fiery ordeal. We don't do that, do we? But as followers of Jesus, we also don't act as if something strange has happened when the Lord allows or even causes suffering to come into your life. We shouldn't look at it and go, wow, that was weird. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be on the sidelines going, I didn't know about that rule. We do not take the perspective of this world that suffering is worthless and that suffering is the inevitable refuse that we all have to deal with. There are bumper stickers that say that. Suffering is not something that makes us angry. It is not something that causes us to be bitter towards our God. But for us, we are not to be surprised because God has told us in advance and we know the rule. And we rejoice. And we are blessed. Again, this isn't the first time Peter commanded rejoicing in this letter. He says, in this you rejoice, back in chapter 1, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, through the, through, though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor 
revelation of Jesus Christ. We are looking. We are looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And we have eternity in sight. So do not be ashamed of your Savior. Nor that you've been chosen to follow him. Know the gospel. The good news that we preach. And my friend, preach it boldly. Preach it boldly to your family members. Preach it boldly to your neighbors and to your co-workers. Preach it with grace and in kindness and love. But my friends, they need to know the good news. And so don't be ashamed. Never be ashamed of your Lord, nor of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And finally, my friends, trust your Creator. Trust Him. You may be facing a trial right now, and it may be at the hand of, of a world that is hostile towards you, and you might be feeling it this week. Remember that your God is faithful. Remember that He is accomplishing His purpose in your life. And so trust Him and enjoy the blessing of sharing in his suffering and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit as comforts you. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you again for this amazing message, for this theology of suffering that Peter shares with us. And Father, as we, as we wrap this up and we look at these principles of, and ways to apply these, these ideas and this doctrine to our personal lives and our walk with Jesus, I, I pray, Lord, that you would you would transform our minds and help us to understand what you say here. I, I pray that we would be those that would understand the rule, that we would be those who, who, who follow you and, and we're not surprised, we're not embittered, and we are not ashamed, ashamed. But Lord, teach us what it means to rejoice in our suffering. Teach us to trust you. You are a good God and we give you praise today. Father, in closing, I'd like to just pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who truly know suffering in a way that, that we have never experienced. We lift them to you. We pray that you would grant to them peace, the comfort of the Holy Spirit this day. And as they wake up to a new day here in a few hours and face persecution anew, in a new way from new people, as many of them give their lives, I pray that you would glorify yourself and that you bring about great good for them we love you and we thank you in jesus name amen